the children are dismissed. Um, Our scripture reading today comes from Galatians 5, verses 1 and 13 through 15. For freedom, Christ set us free. Stand firm then, and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. For you were called to be free, brothers and sisters. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out, or you will be consumed by one another. The word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what your word says about us. God, I'm so thankful that you don't leave it up to us to define you. You don't leave it up to us to define ourselves. You have called us to yourself. You've defined yourself. You have uh, given us a, a picture of your grace, a picture of your mercy. And Father, you have demonstrated what real freedom looks like. So God, I pray as we walk through freedom, God, I pray that places in which we need to redefine freedom for ourselves, will you do that for us? Will you shatter any false understandings of freedom? Any places where our freedom may indeed just be an idol for us and give us a true picture of what redemptive liberty looks like. We pray that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me just first say that I have not seen the women at this church as relaxed as I have seen. Not that women are stressful. That just came out all the way wrong. I'm just so thankful that as I look at the folks who came back from this woman's retreat, just seeing like the incredible, I mean, I'm seeing this incredible reverence and this incredible love for each other and people kind of debriefing some things. And I'm thankful and I'm convicted. So men, we're on the clock. We got some things we're going to be sending out soon, but men, we're on the clock. So we're going to be jumping in. So we've been talking about idols and honestly, every single idol sermon we go through at the end of the day, we end up figuring out the ways in which we end up worshiping ourselves. Every single topic of idolatry, every single area of idolatry, at the core of it, you can see how we, in some form or fashion, are trying to worship self. And the scary thing about idols are that they don't look like they're idols on the front end. They, they typically will mask. The, the bad stuff are easy to identify, right? If you see somebody kneeling down before a gargoyle, okay, that looks like idolatry, right? But if you, it's hard when, when the idol itself is just something good, when the idol is something that's, that's even praiseworthy. The idol is something that in and of itself is not a bad thing, it's not a sinful thing, it's not a wicked thing, but somehow we have made it an ultimate thing. And so now it becomes the idol. And so one of the, one of the, one of the areas that we decided as we were laying this out that we thought, man, we really need to dig into this, is this idea of freedom. Freedom is never something you would typically look at as an idol. Why? Because we all want freedom. Nobody would say, don't give me freedom. Can you please give me some chains? I would prefer chains. None of us would do that. We all have a high value for freedom, right? And, and it's, you don't even have to be a believer to have a high value for freedom. Folks would say that one of the most cherished possessions in the world is freedom. Anytime there are people facing tyranny, enslavement, harsher, cruel governments longing for freedom and liberty, we jump behind that, at least in theory. We can get our, our head behind it, right? Somebody's longing to be free. And, and, and there's no question, those who have never had freedom, uh, they've never tasted freedom, they will give up almost anything to obtain it, right? 
And those who have lost their freedom dream of regaining it once again. This is not a hard thing. We, we get freedom in and of itself as something that we all want, we want to hold on to. It's a good thing, but can it become an ultimate thing? Can it become an idol? I just want you to sit and think on that for a minute. Some of the other things we've talked about, we've been able to, 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 to flesh out and figure out, okay, I could see how this thing becomes ultimate, and then all of a sudden it becomes an idol. So can freedom, on any level, can freedom become an idol. Now, remember what we've been saying. Anything that we value more than our love for God and our love for neighbor is an idol. Anything you value higher than your love for God and your love for neighbor is an idol. So that means that if there's something that I do that's good, but it gets in the way of my ability to love God and love my neighbor, it is therefore an idol. So with that definition, can freedom be an idol? Can freedom get in your way of actually loving God and loving the neighbor? Remember what we said. An idol, anything that we, that we value more than God and neighbor, right, is something that we protect, we pursue, and we prioritize. We all would protect our freedom. We all would pursue our freedom. And we all prioritize our freedom. But my question is, if you protect and you pursue and you prioritize, at whose expense? That's the question. Any idol that you protect, anything that you think is a good thing, and you're protecting, you're pursuing, you're prioritizing, a mature Christian should go, okay, who stands to suffer if I pursue this in this way? History is replete with examples of countries and their respective leaders using freedom or liberty as a veil under which horrible atrocities occur, right? I mean, when you look throughout history, you can look here. Early American colonists viewed indigenous peoples as a threat to their existence and what they believed to be their God-given right to expansion. And therefore, they were a threat to their freedom, right? Hitler believed that Jews were a large reason for the economic problems facing Germans after World War II and therefore called them a threat to their freedom, right? I looked at a quote from uh, a famous... Uh, a, a famous kind of revolutionary hero in French history during the French Revolution, 1793, there was a woman named Madame Roland. Madame Roland was someone that was a part of the main uh, resistance force in France when they were fighting for the revolution, uh, the very revolution that inspired many of our founding fathers. Many of the folks that came out of the Enlightenment were inspired by this revolution. And so one of the leaders of this revolution, Madame Roland, she was executed during the French Revolution. And on her way to the guillotine, she's marching to the guillotine. They've decided, because however they viewed freedom, she was the threat, they decided to put her on the guillotine. And as she's walking, she passes by this main statue that's in France today. And it's a statue that's, that, that was erected almost as an homage to the Roman goddess of liberty known as Libertas. Coincidentally, that's the, same, that's the same statue after which our Statue of Liberty has been modeled. Lady Liberty is just the Roman goddess Libertas. And here's what she did. She walked by Libertas. She walked past this statue. And here are the words. She said, oh, Liberty, what crimes are committed in thy name? You see, freedom needs to be defined much more objectively because one person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter. 
So we need to be able to define what actual freedom is. And this is definitely the case individually as well. We, we spent time, and we can spend time looking at systemically and communally how that has been abused, uh, I mean, ad nauseum. We can do that, but the, it goes even deeper. You can look at this on an individual level. The idea of individual freedom is one that we hold near and dear to our hearts. My thought, my free speech, my free expression. When this becomes the ultimate idol, what happens? See, this is where it's hard for us, right? Because I've got, the, I've got how I feel, I've got what I think, and because on some level I have, it's not that these things are bad, but I've actually made my individual thoughts, my individual expression, my individual speech, this ultimate thing that ought not ever be challenged. It ought not ever be questioned. It ought not ever be stopped on any level. And if it does, here's what we say, right? How do you know something's an idol? When it looks like it's going to be taken away, how might you respond? Now, on, a, on an easy, I mean, I can do this on an easy level a lot of times for us. If I think something, I don't want anybody to challenge it. And so, and then we got to be careful because don't get me wrong. There are people who, uh, uh, the moment they have a thought, if people don't like it, they try to silence them too quickly. And we're not talking about that. But, but in some cases, there are times where there's something you think or something that you feel that's just objectively wrong. And you don't want to actually take that. And we have a phrase right now that I get it. I promise when I say this, I get it. But sometimes it gets taken too far. There's a phrase. If you say something or you assert something and it should be challenged, but you don't want to be challenged, you'll say, I said what I said. (laughs) Which really doesn't mean a whole lot if you're wrong. It truly doesn't. Again, don't hear me say that you're not supposed to be able to stand on something you truly stand and believe in, but be open to be challenged because otherwise what you think is an idol to you. So we've got to get to a place where we realize my freedom, my freedom to speak, my freedom to think, my freedom to act, is that an idol for me? Does it get in the way of something else? Does it get in the way of someone else? People can say, I don't care about how this makes you feel because this is quote-unquote my truth. But what if your truth is not in accordance with God's? Then your truth has become an idol to you. It doesn't mean that there's not a place for realizing subjectively there are different experiences that we have. There are different things that we've engaged, different conversations that have affected us differently. We're not taking anything away from that, but be very careful how highly you elevate your truth. Because no matter what we're talking about, when we're talking about God's heart, That truth is not subjective. It's not. So it's okay to have your truth, but make sure it's in subjection to God's truth. Otherwise, your truth is an idol to you. You're not worshiping God anymore. You're worshiping yourself. You might have a situation where somebody says, well, you know, I I don't, this is my truth, and and my truth isn't in accordance with with, with God's word. So you know what that means? That just means that my feelings win out. Do my feelings win over God's truth? Because I might be an idolater. You might have a situation, this is an easy one. You might have a a teenager or someone who's in a a relationship. They don't like the rules of the house. The rules of the house, let's assume these are good rules. These are godly rules. Let's assume that for all intents and purposes, these rules reflect God's heart. This is what has to happen in this house to please God well. And you're like, I don't like these rules. I don't like them. They feel too constraining. I want to be free. I I don't want to be restrained. Because on some level, we think that that's what real freedom is, is just free from any restraint. 
It's interesting because, you know, we hear that the, the passage we've gone through before where there is no vision, people perish, and we're talking about how often that is misused and abused for, to be able to have a church building fund and put the vi- building vision up on the, st- st- the screen. None of that means that, right? Quite literally, that means when there is no revealed word of God, the people will cast off restraints. Casting off restraints is a bad thing. Casting off restraints is a sign of real self-worship. So, so we got to be careful, right? You got a teenager that's like, I don't want to be, I don't like these rules. I want freedom. I just want to be free. I want to be free. So they cast off restraints only to find out these really harsh consequences that they may have to face later. How did your truth work out for you? We've got to be very careful when we talk about what freedom really means. And here's why. Whenever our desire for freedom supersedes our desire to love God and to love our neighbor, freedom becomes your master and you become its slave. You realize, like, it's weird to say that freedom can be a slave, but it can be if it's not defined properly for you. Freedom, when it's your ultimate goal or it's your ultimate cause, is a terrible taskmaster. It cannot possibly protect you or lead you. And this is where we're finding Paul talking to the church in Galatia. Because in many ways, he uses a phrase that if you don't understand freedom properly, you can't possibly understand what this passage means. He uses this phrase that almost feels peculiar for him to to, to even use it here based on the way we define freedom. Look at this first verse of chapter 5. For freedom, Christ set us free. Stand firm then. And don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. For freedom, Christ set us free. That just feels redundant, doesn't it? He already set us free. Why do you mean you did it for freedom? Like, what does that mean? You set us free. Why are you saying this twice? This is a big, this is a big question. Now, before you even go deeper, you got to understand what's happening here. Who's Paul talking to? Well, you got this church in Galatia. And in this, in this area, you've got a lot of Gentile Christians. Gentile basically is anybody that was not Jewish were called Gentiles. So you've got these new churches that have come from all kinds of pagan religions. They didn't come from the Jewish religion. They came from these pagan religions, believing all these things. They had their own individual truths, y'all. They had all these other things that they could combine and go, well, I heard that Jesus part, but this is my truth. They had all of that. And Paul had to help them root that out. But there was a problem because you had many folks who were Jewish who also became Christians, and they wanted to force these new believers to take on all of the Jewish customs as well. Because you see, relationship with God was one thing, but their ethnicity and their culture was their idol. You get to that place where it's like, well, I'm just used to this. And it's okay to be used to a thing, but when you're ready to to divide because you don't get what you're used to, That's an idol. I'm used to singing these songs. I'm used to singing it this way. I'm used to having service work this way. I'm used to having only these topics brought up. You might be guilty of being an idolater. So now you've got these Jews who are going around saying, these Jewish Christians going, okay, that's great. I'm glad you love Jesus, but you need to do all these other things too. We got a whole bunch of other laws that, are gonna, that we're going to put in place. Because the idea was, it wasn't enough to have real relationship with God. The idea was, in order for you to have a relationship with God, you have to incorporate these Jewish customs, these Jewish courtesies. You had to incorporate it. There was no way to get to God outside of that. 
They were known as Judaizers. It comes from the Greek word for the, the Jewish community there. So these Judaizers were these Christians who still were trying to bring all of their other spiritual practices in. And let me just say something real quick. Spiritual practices are good. Please hear me. This is not to say, hey, don't have any spiritual practices. He, Paul isn't saying spiritual practices are a form of slavery. The problem is this. There are things that objectively God says that we need to avoid as sin, right? We're going to talk about that in a minute. But there are things that God says as a believer, this is what we're pressing for. So objectively, we all need to be battling sin well. And we all need to be helping each other battle sin well. That is nobody, that's God's truth. Forget about whether you agree with it or not. That's God's truth. Whether you believe it doesn't even matter. Whether you agree with it, you can say, I don't believe in gravity. Jump off a building and see what happens. Whether you believe it or not is immaterial. It's still true. So you got a situation where, where, where you may be a believer. You've been a believer for a long time, and you got somebody that's a new believer. You have your practices that help you connect to God really well. You have your disciplines that help you focus on who God is. And now you think it's not enough for them to know Jesus. It's not enough for them to start growing. You go, hey, listen, if you're really going to be a Christian, you need to be getting up at 4 in the morning like I do. Again, not a bad thing, but it could be an ultimate thing. And it actually starts feeling like slavery for a person for whom that is not the best way for them to be able to connect to God. Anybody here not a morning person? It can be real easy to be guilted in to be like, well, you know what? (laughs) I was a loud amen. Listen, (laughs) I'm with you. Whoever that was, I'm with you. And it's it's hard because the moment, if you're a new believer and you're like, okay, like I just want to love God. I just want to follow God. And you just gave me seven or eight pairs of handcuffs that I got to put on just to worship him. It's a form of slavery. This is what Paul is saying. That's why he uses the word yoke. You're giving them another yoke of slavery. You see, in the ancient world, when you were actually a POW, right, a war occurs and your side lost and you're now a POW, you know what they would do? They would put a yoke around your neck like you would put around cattle, around a cow, and, and among it would be this sign that would show you are now their slave. What Paul is saying is, so, so he's talking To these Gentiles saying, listen, don't listen to all of this mess from these folks trying to tell you, go back to all this old time religion. Mm -hmm. It's a time out for the old time religion. And he's not even knocking and saying that the practices are bad. He's saying the fact that they tie that to this is what it means to be close to God. This is what it means to have access to God. This is what it means to have relationship with God. You, you, You realize that whenever you create a system to get to God, the system becomes your God. You start worshiping, then you start questioning people who aren't doing the system right. Again, we're not talking about sin. We're not talking about ways in which you can clearly say, yo, that right there, that that hurts the heart of God. We're not talking about that. We're just saying, I I noticed you didn't wake up at 359. I I, I noticed that you didn't use that specific word that we said we use when we pray. I noticed that you didn't uh, memorize this passage this way or some churches. I noticed, I remember going to one church. I hate this. I went to this one church. Listen, church can mess you up, y'all. Church with this stuff will mess you up. You will have this stuff going. You can have people thinking, I'm not even a Christian because they don't follow the right system. I had somebody walk into a church one time and they, they go in and you had the wrong Bible version. So they would pull the version out of your hand and then place the right one in your hand. Because again, that's another thing. Well, you know, the real godly one is this. Why? Because that's your preference. That's okay. You can, I was raised KJV. You realize that every time I do the benediction, I still do it in the King James. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Yes, Keenan, I'm, I'm here for you. 
And I love to do it. I love it. It's how I learned it. It's how I memorized it. And I love it. And it means something to me. And, and, and I don't think it offends anybody. But again, I don't have to do that. We can do it in the NIV. We can do it in the ESV. It doesn't matter. I just love it because it's just something for me. And, and, I, and several of us have brought it up before and said, hey, it just brings me back to something in the past. Okay, fine. But it ought not be an ultimate thing. Because then all of a sudden, guess what? I've created a yoke of slavery for myself and possibly for yours. So we got to be very careful when, when, we, when we do this, when we start saying, hey, my idea of discipling you is actually a way of, of enslaving you. Discipleship should never look like slavery. Serving God should never look like slavery. So all that said, Paul is really trying to handle that first. He's trying to say, listen, I do not want you guys, God doesn't want you all, putting back on a yoke of slavery. But at the same time, once, once you walk through that, and once you get through this type of, of, of freedom, right? Because there is a freedom from old, crippling, enslaving religion. That is a freedom that a lot of people, I feel like, can, can rock with. A lot of people can connect to. If anybody has had any kind of church baggage of any kind, it can be like, yo, I don't need any of that. Now, here's the danger. We can do the whole throw the proverbial baby with the bathwater. Sometimes, because I've been damaged by this aspect of church, or because certain things have been a form of slavery to me, I don't want, any, I don't want to have anything to do with the church, that's also a logical fallacy. You don't fall into this whole because uh, or uh, with this, therefore because of this. That's a logical fallacy. You, you are being illogical if that's how you function. This hurt me in church, therefore it's church that caused the hurt. This hurt me in church, therefore it's the gospel that caused the hurt. This hurt me in church, therefore it's Jesus that failed me. You're functioning in a logical fallacy. That's not actually how real logic works. So, so ultimately, there's no question. I, I use this example before and I use it here. When you think, I always say, like, imagine, imagine that there, I've got this incredible tool, this tool that is just, it, it can do anything. It can paint walls. It can pay your bills. It can watch your kids. It's just some kind of, it can, pay, it can hammer nails. Y'all are like, how is that even possible? Just follow with it. See, there, I got one tool guy who knows. And let's say I call Jeff up. Jeff, I got this incredible tool. You're not going to believe it. It's going to be incredible. It does all these different things. You're like, yo, bring it over. So I come over, and I bring the tool. And before I ever let him see how it watches his kids, before I let him see how it paints his walls, how it hammers nails, I take this thing, and I just start demolishing his brand new car, just knocking it out, knocking out windows, knocking out the tires, knocking all this stuff out. And he looks at me, and he goes, if he doesn't try to beat my, he looks at me, and he goes, <laughs> he, look, he looks at me and goes, I'm never, ever trusting a tool again. You see how illogical that is, right? But for many of us, that's what we do. I'm never trusting church again. I'm never trusting Jesus again. I'm never trusting God again. Why? Because here's the problem. The problem was that you can say that tool that was used was, was, may have been good in and of itself, but it was misused. Don't hate the tool. Hate the fool who abused the tool. Be frustrated with the fool that abused the tool and go, Lord, I'm so thankful when, when, when grace abounds, I'm so thankful that you redeem fools too. Because that's where grace should take you. So all of that said, this is where Paul is really trying to get them, listen, don't get caught up in the slavery of the past. Don't get caught up in these old religious traditions, these things that can hold you uh, hostage. Don't get caught up in that. Because there's freedom from that. 
And so that's something that we should care about. That's something we want to be careful about when we are training other folks in God to this and we're sharing how, what it means to follow Jesus. All those things we've got to be very mindful of. But he uses this phrase, for freedom, Christ set us free. So here's the question. What did Christ free us from? Think about that. What did Christ, if you're a Christian today, what did Christ free you from? Now, it's easy to be like, you know, the, the catch-all answer is sin. Okay, and that's true. You, you, get, you get the apple, that's good. <laughs> okay, he saved us from sin. That's, that's true. Now, let's drill down deeper. What was it specifically that he had to rescue us from then? Because look, yes, he could, you, typically when we say he saved us from sin, we're thinking about sins plural. We're thinking about the individual things. We think about, man, if you knew where I came from, you don't know what he done for me. We think through that stuff. and we, we think through all the things that Jesus delivered you from, and that is awesome, and that's great. Those are actual habits and acts and livelihoods that needed to change, but there's something deeper there. What did he actually deliver us from? How and why does sin enslave men and women? Let me ask it another way. How free do you think you really are? How free do you actually think you really are? And I ask this because I think that in many ways we end up having a very inflated view of ourselves and our ability to choose good things. We have a high view of ourselves and our ability to choose God, to choose the right thing. That's the reason why we pat ourselves on the back after we become a believer. Look, I didn't chose. I was so smart to see the logic just made sense. God clearly is the king of the universe. And, that, and we start going into this thing of like ways that I can pat myself on the back, that I can aggrandize myself for the fact that I know Jesus. Because we actually have a high view of ourselves, right? So, so how free then are you? How free were you before Christ? How free are you with Christ? Listen, if you don't know, if you can't answer this properly, if you don't know what you've been truly saved from, you will never understand what you've been saved to. If you don't get what you've truly been saved from, you will not understand what you've been saved to. Nothing is worse than just going, hey, I, listen, there were people after, at the end of slavery, there were people who were like, yay, we're free, now what? And the people just suffered as a result. Why? Because people said, okay, what am I saved to now? I, I've been freed from something. You can't just live out of what you've been saved from. You live into something. You don't just say, I'm running from what, what, what captured me before. That is, that's exhausting. There's got to be something that leads us into something else. We say it all the time. You're not just saved from something. You're saved to something. So what have you been, what have you been freed from? And here's, here's where we have to get down to the nitty-gritty, and this is where I think Paul takes us. This idea of freedom, it depends on how you define it. It truly does. Because if you think that freedom, uh, if, you, if you've ever studied any degree of, of, of philosophy, there's uh, two different ways that freedom is defined. It's known as negative liberty and positive liberty. It really started in the 50s or 60s, and so folks have really kind of laid this out. Here's how they'll break it down. Negative liberty, right, is this idea that I, I, freedom, I define freedom by having a, a complete removal of all restraints so that I have free access to do anything my heart desires. 
So, so to me, negative liberty simply means removing any restraints that are in my way. Any external restraints are not there anymore. Positive liberty is, is, what, is it, what does it mean to remove the internal restraints? So here's, here's a great example. Let's say that I want, I'm leaving church today, okay? So I pull out and I go right to this first street and I make a left. And then I go to the next light and I make another left. Nothing stopped me. Nothing forced me. I just said, I want to make a left turn. I can now make a left turn. There's no uh, boundary there. There's no gate there. There's nothing there stopping me. I want to make a left turn. I can go make a left turn. That's negative liberty. There's nothing stopping me. There's no, I have all access that I want to be able to make those turns. Now, let's rewind. What if I get to that street and I know I probably should make a right turn, but I know that today them Popeye's chicken sandwiches is up. And I know my fastest way is to make that left turn. Now, I know that on my diet, I probably shouldn't go, but I got this craving so badly, and I just can't say no. So I make that left turn anyway. Guess what? There's an internal restriction that's there that has not been removed. You see, it's not enough. So you got people who will debate and go, hey, the only thing we need to worry about philosophically is just negative liberty. We just, this is a political discussion, too. We, we, ought, we only should be concerned about making sure that there's just nothing externally stopping someone from doing a certain thing. Then they can be as free as possible and then let everybody else just kind of do what they're going to do. But then you've got the other side that goes, well, wait, but there are things that actually start impressing on people that have them uh, uh, completely devoid of any sense of confidence to go do a thing. They may not realize that they're actually capable because they've been told for so long that they can't. And so there's this limitation internally that's there that we've got to be able to remove. See, both of those are necessary for real freedom. You need to have external things that are removed. Those are things we can see, and those things we focus the most on. That's how a lot of good religious practices happen. I've got this practice over here that helps me physically remove this temptation. I, I want to make sure I don't look at this. I can put this thing in place so that, that that thing, I can put that out, and I won't have that thing stopping me from serving God. But on the internal level, what do we do? So again, how free are you? You see, what the scriptures seem to show us is that you are only free to choose whatever your greatest desires are. That's it. You're only free to choose whatever your greatest desires are. So if your greatest, yes, there's no question like, hey, I want to be able, so when, I, when, when, when that example I just used, I've been like, I know I need to turn right and, and, and take care of my temple and make sure I don't put that incredibly delicious, tantalizing morsels of chicken goodness that is Popeye's chicken sandwich. I, I want to make sure that I don't go that way. I should go right anyway, but guess what? I'm so limited. I'm powerless. At this point, my desire for chicken supersedes my desire to take care of my body. So I made that turn, right? You know Why? Because you're only free to choose whatever your greatest desires are. That you're only free to do that. Now, here's where it comes down spiritually. Romans says that no one does good. No one seeks after God. How is that possible? I thought we could choose to do good. I thought we could choose to seek God. Why can we not? Because I'm only free to choose my greatest desire, but what sin did to me, what sin did to me is it said, you now, outside of me, you will never Choose me for the right reasons than the right way. Because guess what? You're not as free as you think you are. 
You're not, I'm not as free. Outside of Jesus, I'm not as free as I think I am. See, there's something that has to happen. My will is bound by my ego. My will is bound by my own sin nature. Something has to break my will. The crazy thing is, even though people think that Christianity is so constricting, technically the gospel frees you in a way that nothing else can. Because now you are freed to choose God. Now you are freed to follow him. Now you are freed to battle sin. So when, when, when all of this that Paul is saying in Galatians, he starts with, hey, don't fall back into slavery. Don't fall back into following all these religious customs that in and of themselves are not going to do anything in order to make you closer to God if the motivations aren't right. And then he go, jumps down to uh, first, verse 13 to walk us through then. It's not enough for him to just say, you're free from that. He then walks you through and guess what? Because the Holy Spirit has broken your will. Martin Luther, uh, we just, you know, Halloween just happened, and that's actually the day that the Protestant Reformation occurred. And so one of the things that he wrote, he wrote a book called The Bondage of the Will. And in it, it was a great philosophical treatise on what sin really does and what sin really did to the will of mankind. He said, man, it's something had to happen in order for our will to be broken because we are held in bondage by our will. We're held in bondage by it. I can only choose my greatest desire. And if my greatest desire is never for God, if my greatest desire is never to love him and to love my neighbor with the right motivations, I need that broken. And this is why when we get to verse, he, he, he spends 2 through 11 uh, walking through all of the religious platitudes and the religious uh, practices that, that were there in the, in the Jewish uh, community, walks through that. Then he gets to 13 and he says, for you were called to be free, brothers and sisters. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. Why does he have to say this? Well, number one, it's, it's, it's easy, and I think a lot of us have seen this or even been a part of this. Sometimes it's very dangerous when you think that your freedom means Freedom from God and freedom to sin. It's very dangerous because, because ultimately what real freedom should be is I'm now free to choose him. I'm now free to battle sin in a way that I never could before. I'm actually able to choose a thing for the right reasons that I couldn't before. And there's two places that he goes here. He talks about ourselves, right? He talks about our, you were called to be free. But don't, this, uh, don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. Now, this is very similar to what you see Peter writing to another group of believers in 1 Peter 2, where he says, submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's servants or as God's slaves. You see, if we don't understand this properly, here's what happens. When you look at what Paul is kind of getting across, he's getting across this. Our tendency is to be self-worshippers, which means, by definition, we won't possibly love God or each other well. You, you, you can't. Because even if you do something nice, that's one thing. There's plenty of people that do really, really nice things. The question is, what is the root motivation for those things? And ultimately, for the believer, you are now free to say, My, yes, I want to see you be well. And I want to see you taken care of. And I want to see you provided for. I care deeply about that. Not only because of myself, but more so because I know that's what my father cares about. 
I now have the ability to talk. There are plenty of people who do a lot of great things. They become believers and they go, I'm still going to do these things and now I have a greater reason for doing them. Because ultimately I'm going, I see how this images the God that made me and just remade me. Because I've been remade into his image, I now can connect what I do to the why I should be doing it. See, you're not free. You're totally free. If you don't know why you do it and you can't tie it to the God that made you, you're not really free. And some of the things that you're doing, your freedom can end up being used as a form of idolatry. Now, what does idolatry look like in this case? When Paul talks, he says, serve one another through love, for the whole law is fulfilled in one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this is, this is, this is interesting. Because what this means then is every time we talk about freedom, we should always be juxtaposing that with what it means to care for the neighbor. Every time we talk about freedom as believers, we should be thinking about how then do I use my freedom for, the, for those who may not have it? Or how do I use my freedom for just my neighbor? And to go, Lord, I now am free to do and to care and to love well. So, so what does it mean for me to be able to practice that? But that's not what we do. Our freedom is always just very individual. So it's like, I'll use my freedom. Here's the question we don't ask. Who stands to suffer in order for me to have my freedom? Who stands to suffer in order for me to have my freedom? We've used this example a few times, but you, 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 you can't. We'd be remiss if we don't look at the very history of this country. Who stood to, to suffer in order for citizens to have free speech? to have uh, the, uh, the, the right to the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness? Who, who, which people didn't get free speech? Which people uh, didn't get uh, whatever land that they lived on? Which people did not get certain things? How can we possibly say then this was done in the spirit and, the, and, and with the idea of God's freedom and God's liberty? So right now, individually for you, when you think about your individual rights and your individual freedom, how does your freedom empower you to love your neighbor? That should be the question we're all asking all the time. Matter of fact, this is really what the function of discipleship should be, is to be able to keep the greatest commandment. What does it mean for me to love God and love my neighbor? That should be it. That's what the law hinges on. That Greek word that's there also means fulfilled. The, the law is fulfilled in this, love God and love your neighbor. Love God, love your neighbor. Love God, love your neighbor. Doesn't say love country, love your neighbor. Doesn't say love this leader and love your neighbor. Doesn't say love your denomination and love your neighbor. Love God and love your neighbor. So what do we do? How free are you? Do you see your freedom in Christ as empowering you to love others? Because sadly, our freedom in many ways, is used to ignore others. Our freedom so often is used to overlook others. And then we have the nerve to thank Jesus for the freedom that we have. I told the story years ago, a friend of mine went uh, to one of the, um, what they call kind of slave castles on the west coast of Africa. And I think this one may have been in Sierra Leone. He spent a lot of time there, and he said that while he was there, 
there was this particular castle where this is where folks would come, and they would, uh, obviously, that you would have Portuguese traders or Spanish traders or several others that would come, capture whatever Africans had been gathered, and they would be held in this chamber at the base of the castle. And in this chamber, you can go today and still see the chains that are in the walls of this castle. We're talking 1500s, 15 to 1600s. And, and uh, above that chamber, there was a chapel where folks would have church. They would just be worshiping, singing songs that are true about God, extolling the virtues of a holy, gracious, just God. And in this particular castle, there were minutes, recorded minutes that they had preserved, so you were able to see what actually was going on in one of those service days. And in the minutes, whoever was recording lamented and complained about the noise of those wailing beneath their feet. And here's what they said they did. They just started singing louder. They started singing these godly Christian hymns over the wailing and the suffering of their neighbor. Are they free? Do we use this, this love and this grace and this mercy that we say we've been given by our God, do we use it to love our neighbor or do we use it to drown their sorrows? Do we use it to mute out their voices? Why? Because I can't be bothered with your problems. I, I, got, I got the freedom of Jesus so that I can deal with my problems. You see, that's an idol. Your freedom is not, that's not even godliness. That's sin. That's, that's what it looks like for us not to steward our freedom well. And then Paul lists some things. You see, if we're not stewarding our freedom well, then it does some things both communally and individually. If you look down, I'm going to skip down a little bit further. Look at what he says. The reason why he has to say, now live by the Spirit, is because ultimately it's the Spirit who broke your will. We love using this phrase spirit-filled, and it frustrates me because when we say spirit-filled, we're pointing to what demonstrative things happen on a Sunday. That has nothing to do with it. What gifts you showed on a Sunday, that has nothing to do with it. What really, when I tell you that there's a, an apple tree outside, what are you going to look for? An apple. I tell you there's an orange tree outside, what are you going to look for? An orange. Why? Because fruit proves what kind of tree you are. Gifts are not fruit. So when you look at this, when you look at what he says, he starts to point out what the fruit of the flesh looks like, because here's what, it, here's what happens. When my will has not been broken by the Spirit of God, then this is what I indulge in. And here's what he says. Now, the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatreds, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness carousing, and anything similar. I'm warning you about these things, as I warned you before, because we need to be reminded that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why? It's not because you didn't keep all the rules. If this is something that is part and parcel of where my will is, then ultimately the spirit has not done its work. Something is missing. I've got all the actions, but I have none of the spirit. You see, the way you test the spirit, the way you know somebody is spirit-filled has nothing to do with what you heard or saw them do on Sunday. It has everything to do with how my life, how do I comport myself Monday through Saturday? 
How do I know that? Because look at what the verse says next in verse 22. This is when he goes to, when people say, I know I'm all over the place, but you got to know this is a big deal. When people say I'm spirit filled, I grew up in the church where this is how we talked. Several of us here grew up in the church. Well, that's how you talk. We'll leave you saying now. I like it, but I don't know if they spirit filled over there. Why? Because you didn't notice something on a Sunday? That's just biblical. That's being biblically illiterate. Because ultimately, this is how you should be able to know if somebody actually is filled with the Spirit of God. How do you know? Because you look at the fruit on the tree. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Okay. Now, notice that this, this word in the Greek is not plural. A lot of times we'll say the fruits of the Spirit. We would prefer it to be fruits because that way it's like, I ain't got that one yet, but I got this one. <laughs> He's still working on me, y'all. So, you know, I'm not that patient, but, you know, I'm not really wired to be patient, but God's going to give me that fruit. But he gave me some other fruit. No, it's singular. If the Spirit of God is in you, this whole bushel of fruit should be there. So when we sit there and we go, oh, well, I, I got the Spirit of God, or I want to know if that church has the Spirit of God, you can't find out on a Sunday if the church has the Spirit of God. You can hear some things, okay, I heard the Word of God, awesome. Love the worship, awesome. People seem really great. You've got to be in community in order to know where the Spirit of God is. You've got to be in community. Let me tell you, I grew up in a church where every gift was on display. And I'm all for the gifts. Ain't nothing wrong with any of these gifts as long as they are functioning in a way where we can build the body. I'm all for it. But I have folks that will speak in tongues on Sunday and use that same tongue to cuss you out on Monday. The question is, where's the fruit? It's very different. We, we say this all the time. Be very careful to conflate giftedness with fruitfulness. It's a big difference. And what Paul is saying is, if you have truly received the freedom that the gospel affords you, then you will use your freedom to love your neighbor. You will use your freedom for, to allow for these, this fruit to be on display. When, and, and here's the thing. When you realize, when you look at this and you, you look at some of these things that he uh, laid out, so fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Why? How? Where do we find where do we find the motivation to have joy when we have very little reason to be happy? You see, only the gospel gives you this answer. Yes. Only the gospel gives you this answer. There is no other way. When you're like, here's the thing. If you were raised in a gospel that taught you that really uh, what the gospel gives you is freedom from disease or freedom from problems or freedom from financial issues, and then it doesn't come to work out that way, then you're going, where is God? Why did God fail me? I thought God loved me. But God doesn't, there's no question, Jesus is coming to reconcile all things, and all those things will be handled, on, maybe on this side of eternity, but definitely on the other side. He didn't necessarily promise on this side of eternity that all of that will be worked out, but what he did promise is freedom from self, freedom from sin, Freedom from what it is that binds us over and over and over again. This is, what, this is what the gospel promises. So if your definition of freedom is faulty, then you may actually be not serving the God that offers real freedom. It's possible. It's possible that my understanding of the gospel might be off. That's the only way that you could be like, listen, I know that I'm supposed to be kind, but that's just not in me. 
I've heard people say this. I know that, you know, I, I'm, I, and they'll talk about these things as if they're just gifts. Well, that's just not my, my gift. You know, hey, you should be a little bit more gentle in the way that you communicate this. Well, that's just not, I, that's not me. I'm wired differently. We talked about this before. We said, we said how people will do that with regions. I'm from this area. I'm from Boston. I'm from New York. This is just how we do. Or I'm from uh, this area here, and so we don't really, we're not direct with you. We just say, bless your heart, offer you some tea. You know, you got to understand, that's just where I'm from. No, no, no. If the Holy Spirit is doing his work, then it'll undo even your regional issues. It'll undo the stuff that you're like, no, that's just me. You're buying into a false understanding of freedom if you think it's okay to still be that way. So when you look at these things, you have to go, Lord, if my freedom is being used properly, then people can say, man, that person is loving. That person is joyous. Again, why am I joyous even when things are going wrong? Because I realize I have now been given freedom in a way that I don't have to be enslaved to my sin any longer. I don't have to be enslaved to myself. I don't have to be enslaved to my ego. And I realize that there's nothing else that can free me from that. There's nothing else that can free me from that. Because because ultimately, we're all born self-addicts. We all are. I'm addicted to myself. I'm addicted to my comfort. I'm addicted to being right. I'm addicted to being exalted. I'm addicted to being the leader. Or I'm addicted to being the supportive person in the back where they can brag and go, you do so many great things and nobody knows about it. Oh, really? You notice? Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't want to say nothing about it, but I'm glad you noticed. All right. Because I'm addicted to myself. I'm addicted. I just want people to see and I want people to know how great I am. I'm not addicted to God's glory. I'm addicted to my glory. And so ultimately, when, 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 when I'm rooted in that, and I'm rooted in real freedom, joy is something completely different. People say there's joy unspeakable. It's joy unspeakable because ultimately, the best I can do outside of Jesus is just to be happy. The best you can do outside of Jesus is just to be happy. <clears throat> the, the root word of happy is this word, hap. It's where we get uh, the idea of things happening. My happiness is contingent upon good things happening. See, outside of Jesus, the best I can do is just hope for good things to be happening. <clears throat> and then when things aren't happening really well, then I'm angry. I'm upset because God must have failed me. But at the end of the day, my, root, my, my, my joy has to be rooted not just in the incredible thing he did for me yesterday. Because there's no question. I can be thankful for the things that happened yesterday. But there's no guarantee that that thing that happened yesterday will happen tomorrow. So I need to get to a place to go, Lord, what you did to free me, what you did to break me of this yoke of bondage that was self-addiction, if you don't do another thing for me, I have nothing but joy. This is, this, is where, where our, this is how you know if you truly are believing in the gospel or something else. This is how you know. And you look at these other things that it brings up, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh. This idea of putting to death the flesh, how does that happen? You see, this is, this is why understanding Jesus is so important. This is why Christianity is so unique. Because Jesus comes in and says, you're not able to crucify your flesh. You're not able to do this yourself. You know why? Because you're not free. I could give you 
This is what happened. God gives, he did in the Old Testament, a long list of things to say, here's the, perfect, the standard of perfection. Here's what it means to serve me perfectly. You got any number, five, 600 different very specific commandments and some others by inference. You've got all these things that you have to be able to keep in order to have a standard of perfection. And he's like, listen, if you had it in you, you would have done it. But you don't. That's why Romans says none choose God. None seek after God. This doesn't mean none tried. It just means none can. Why? Because you're not as free as you think you are. And we're so thankful that Jesus says, I love you so much that the flesh that has actually enslaved you, the, the things that, that you can't quite stop doing or the, the thought processes that you have that just don't change, no matter how much people guilt you into it, no matter how much people try to browbeat you or logically walk you into it, you can't change any of that, but I love you enough to come and do the changing for you. And the way I'm going to do it, what Jesus says is the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to come. First of all, I'm going to live and show you even this example of what a life lived in complete and utter obedience and worship and seeking the glory of God the Father. I'm going to live that out. I'm going to, I'm going to show it. But I'm not going to do it in a way of like, hey, check me out. I'm so great. You're not. I'm going to actually condescend and come down and be with you. I'm going to be alongside you. And so it's, it's, not a, it's not even a humble brag. It's not like uh, he's walking in and almost trying to get everybody to just go, all right, y'all, come, look at me, check me out, I'm so great. He's going beyond that. Yes, I'm God, but I didn't come here just so that you can fawn over me. I came here so that I could free you. I came here so that I could remake you to be able to have the righteousness I have. I came to remake you so that I can deposit my righteousness into you. You see, this is where if you, this is why honestly, and I know we've talked about this before, but to me, I'm like, if you understood freedom the way the Bible teaches freedom, this would be something that would be so sacred and so joyous that you would sing every Sunday we sing about this. You see, most people in this room, I know that, you know, there's a lot of controversy around it. However, most people, if it's time to stand for the national anthem, people will stand and sing. And yet when we're going to, and that's great, nothing wrong. You want to be thankful for freedoms, no matter who has them, who doesn't, whatever. I've got freedom to be able to, to worship. We can talk about that later. But hey, if you're thankful for your freedom, praise the Lord. You got it. So sing all about it. That's wonderful. Why are you more likely to sing about American freedom than you are about Christian freedom? It makes no sense to be able to stand and say, I serve a loving God that freed me from my sin. But when we're singing about it, I'm just going to stand here with my coffee mug. I'm just going to stare in one place and just think about something else. But if it was about freedom in this country, you'd be the first to sing at the top of your lungs. God bless America, but not God freed me. Is freedom an idol for you? It might be. The way that you define freedom, it might be. If your heart cannot be stirred, if your greatest, if you, if your greatest emotions, if your greatest, uh, the way that your heart is stirred, if they don't get stirred by the freedom that Christ has brought you, then you have to ask, Lord, do I understand freedom? Am I free? Am I free? I have to look at my habits. I have to look at my thought life. It's not just the things I do. It's the things I do and why I do them. Do I do those things out of a sense of joy and out of a sense of, of gratitude and out of a sense of humility and a sense of brokenness? Do, do, I, do I really have that? Or is this something else? 
Last thing I say is this. When you look at the fruit of the Spirit, and please, from now on, whenever I told you, gr- growing up in the church, we would say, like, uh, I, we, people, <laughs> people would get up in church and do, some of y'all can finish this statement. People would get up in church, have testimony service. And it was great. I love testimony service. It's great. Nothing wrong with that. Sometimes you got to have some, some, some guardrails because there's some crazy stuff that's been said in <laughs> testimony service. But, <laughs> but it's a beautiful thing to be able to celebrate together with what God is doing. It's a beautiful thing to be able to say, let's extol the virtues of our great God together. That is awesome. And sometimes people will get up and they'll go, praise the Lord, saints. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Giving glory to God who is the... (laughs) And then depending on your denomination, you'll give reverence to whatever title, bishop, pastor, bishopric, apostle, whatever, and the first lady. (laughs) And then you would say, like, it's you would start to talk about your faith. And on some level, like, you know, it's, it's so good to be in the service. It's so good to be in the house of the Lord, depending on where you're from. And then we start to talk about, like, I love the fact that I'm saved, sanctified, filled with the evidence. <laughs> and somebody said, <laughs> and look, praise, praise the Lord for tradition. There's so many things that I just value about it. But here's the danger. The danger is that we're actually substituting gift for fruit. And when we substitute gift for fruit, you could actually not be on the tree at all. As a matter of fact, when the Bible talks about fruit, this is the kind of fruit that only happens if you're rooted in the Spirit. You see, the root of your salvation is what you care about, not just the fruit of your salvation. So so ultimately... We've got to get to a place where we can go, if I am patient, am I patient because I'm rooted in the freedom of Jesus, or am I patient because i got to look patient in front of people? Because, see, if you're that person, then you don't have the fruit of the Spirit. You're a fruit stapler. So you're taking fruit over here because I like the way this fruit looks, and I like the way that it tastes, but it's already been pulled off the root. But I want you to think that it's rooted in me. So I'm going to put it on the branch, and I'm going to staple it there. And I just hope you don't look too long. So you can look at it for a little bit and be like, oh, that's a really nice fruit. Man, that's really nice. It's kind of snug, but okay, I got it all finally. That's good. But if it has to sit there for a day, it's going to rot. And then I'm going to be exposed. So you know what happens? You get exhausted by just stapling and stapling and stapling and stapling. And Jesus said, I came for you to put down the stapler. I came for you to not have to tape things, Velcro things. I came here so that you no longer have to fake it. You don't have to do any of this any longer. I came to root you. When we understand fruit in that way, when we understand freedom in that way, when we understand the gospel in that way, it changes you. It changes. It it rearranges things for you. It changes why you sing. doesn't even change what you sing. It changes why you sing. It changes why you show up to church. It changes the reasons why we love each other. You see, if we don't get this well, if we just struggle with this idolatry of freedom, you can feel free and be as enslaved as the day is long. And Jesus came to free us. So how free are you? How free are you really? What does it mean to you to know that Jesus has really come to set the captives free? Is that something that makes you want to rejoice? Is it some, And listen, it, I get it. Days are different. 
Sometimes, if some of you are like me, like, you should, you should ask me that three days ago, because three days ago, I was really on one. It was good. Today, that's just not my day. <laughs> that's fair. That's okay. Guess what? Jesus comes to meet you there. You don't got a staple fruit. Jesus comes to meet you there. Hey, listen, I, I, my long suffering is not here today. You know what I need? I need? It's not just me and Jesus. I need a community of other people with the spirit of God so that all of that fruit around me will encourage my heart. I might need to be convicted, but it will encourage my heart. And in encouraging my heart, I can then reappropriate and gather and hold on to the thing because I'm still rooted there. I'm still rooted there. If that's your joy, that's your heart, if that's where real freedom is for you, then praise the Lord. You're equipped. It's hard, and there's no question. We have ups and downs. But that's what he gives us. He gives us this idea of being rooted in freedom so that the fruit of the Spirit comes out of that. This is our Savior. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your freedom. I thank you that we don't, <laughs> we, don't, we don't define our freedom for us. We don't create it. We don't even know where to start. Father, I can just truly acknowledge the ways in which my own heart <sighs> seeks after self and not after you. Father, I pray that you would break our hearts right now. God, I pray that you would give us this this gnawing, nagging thing in the depths, the bowels of our soul that says, Lord, I'm not seeing you well. And maybe even, God, if we're honest, we're going, Lord, I don't know that I feel free. I don't know that I feel free. Lord, I see these areas in my life that maybe are devoid of your fruit, and I'm just so tired of stapling. I'm so tired of acting. I'm so tired of wondering what's, what's wrong with me. God, I pray that you would give us a deep longing and a deep understanding of your gospel, your good news, this good news that says that you have come to set us free, not just free from, from, from tyranny, not just free from oppression, not just free from, from, from enemies, foreign and domestic, domestic. God, you have come to free us from ourselves. So, Father, I pray that you will free us now. God, I pray that you would free us every single day. God, when we think about just how far gone our hearts can be, the fact that we wake up free is a new mercy every morning. God, I pray that we would truly be able to say, God, every morning I wake up and know that great is your faithfulness. You are faithful. You are loving. You are gracious. You are merciful. You are holy. And you love us so much that morning by morning, you say, I'm calling you back to myself. I'm calling you back. I'm loving you again. The areas where the fruit was spoiled yesterday, I'm freshening it today. God, let us be overwhelmed with joy, realizing that if it weren't for you, if it had not been for you on our side, if it had not been for the fact that you rooted us when we were out on the vine, we were out in the weeds and you planted us, and you water us, and you bring us the sunshine of your grace, the sunshine of your mercy. God, let that bring real joy. Let that bring a joy that leads to real holiness, a joy that leads to repentance, a joy that leads to the ability to love our neighbors the way we love ourselves. God, give us a freedom that says we're not just free from, we are free to. And we're free towards serving you and free towards loving and serving our neighbor. God, enlarge our vision 
enlarge our hearts and shrink our egos. In Jesus' name, amen. As we come to this table, this is, this is what we hope to proclaim every Sunday. We hope to proclaim that our greatest hope we hope to proclaim what we say our greatest joy is. Not always happiness, but where our greatest joy is. We're ultimately saying, when I come to this table, I'm basically saying, Lord, I realize that in order for me to truly be free, I need something outside of me. I've always needed something outside of me. I've always, I have to acknowledge the fact that there's parts of my heart that just don't work right outside of you. There, there, there's, there's fruit the fruit of your spirit that just will never come out of me if, if it's not for you. If I'm not rooted in you, there's nothing that's going to come on these branches but thorns and thistles. So when we come to the table, we come with a heavy heart. We come with a heart of repentance, a heart of brokenness. Why? Because if we're honest with ourselves, we can see where those thorns and thistles are. The problem comes when we lack humility and we don't see it. I don't know where any thorns or thistles are in my heart. I'm, I'm good. The hard thing is when you're a fruit stapler, you may not always know it. So you hide behind the, st the stapled fruit. I can't possibly be bad because look at what people told me I was good at. I can't possibly be uh, not pleasing God well because I've gotten accolades for this. But the beautiful thing about the gospel is that when we come to this table, we're saying, I'm so thankful that I don't have to hide anything from Jesus. I'm so thankful that he sees it and he, he mourns it. And then he says, I am faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. So when we come and partake of this table, when we come and partake of this meal, we're not partaking because we feel like we've earned it. We're not coming because we think we've done what's necessary to, a, to attain it. We're saying it's solely because Christ came to set me free that I can come and partake of this now. It's only because I hold to this it's only because I trust in this that I can even come because I know outside of him, I bring nothing but thorns and thistles. I know that outside of him, I bring nothing but raw, uh, nasty soil. I bring nothing but dead leaves and dead, spoiled fruit. I know that. No matter what I've shown everybody else, I know that. And so I'm overwhelmed by the fact that he would love me enough in spite of me, not because of me to say, hey, I've come to set you free. I've come to set you free. I've come to set you free. And I've come to do it because I love you. And every single day I'm coming. Every single day when you are uh, far from me, I come after you. I, I come to rescue you. I'm forever setting you free. If this is true for you, if this is what you hold to, if this is what you're trusting, then this table is for you. If not, I hope, if you don't hear anything else from this sermon, I hope you understand when, when Paul tells us to examine ourselves and comes to make sure we take worthily, you know why he's saying that? Be sure that we're not fruit staplers. God loves you too much to let you go off and be inauthentic. He wants legitimate, authentic relationship with you. So don't come and staple fruit. Come and be rooted where you are. Take time to pray and say, Lord, I need to be rooted in you. I need to know what it means to be truly rooted in your joy and in your mercy. I need to be free before I come and fake freedom. There's no more time for faking fine. There's no more time for faking freedom. Let this be the time. Maybe the first time in your life where you can come 
be changed, be rooted, and come and commune with the people of God together. As our volunteers come, we want to remind you that here at ICON, we do communion by the process of intinction. And so what that means is starting in the back aisles. And so anybody on the side will move uh, to, the, to the middle aisle and walk up this aisle and take a piece of gluten-free bread and dip it in wine or juice as you see fit. On that night that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus gave thanks for this Passover meal, this meal that they would have taken and partaken in for years and years and years. It was a, a, another one of those kind of Jewish customs. It was a beautiful picture of the ways in which God rescued, saved, provided freedom for his people, rescued them so that they did not have to taste death. And in their faith and in their obedience, they put the blood of the lamb over their door. And when that angel of death came, he would pass over. God has always given these pictures of freedom, these foretastes of freedom. And so here they are in this meal celebrating that foretaste of freedom. And they don't even realize that freedom is being fulfilled in their midst. And he says, this, this bread, this is my body given for you, given for your freedom. Take and eat of it. And in the same way, he took the cup. He said, this, this cup, this is my blood. This, this is the blood of a new covenant. It sets you free from the old. It fulfills the old. This is the blood of a new covenant poured out for the remission of your sins, the forgiveness of your sins, all the ways that you were stapling fruit, this is poured out for that. Take and drink of it and do this in remembrance of me. What Paul says is that every time we do this, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns. We are proclaiming this every single Sunday. So that's how often we choose to do it because we want to remember it as often as we're together. And so when you remember this, what are we remembering? We're saying, Lord, we acknowledge that. I, I, honestly, if this isn't true, if Jesus is not who he said he was, then guess what? You're still not rooted. You realize if Jesus was just another good guy, if Jesus was just another good prophet, if Jesus was just somebody that did a lot of great miracles and then is gone, then we still are just fruit staplers because nothing else supernatural has actually been done to be able to rescue us, to be able to provide us freedom. So what we're saying is we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns because we say the only hope that we have is not just in a dead Jesus, but in a resurrected Jesus because it proves that he truly did have the power to root us in places that we could never root ourselves. So if this is where your hope is, if this is where your joy is, if this is where your hope for the future is, then come, be reminded, be convinced, taste and see that our Lord is indeed good. Let's eat together.